Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please play responsibly. For help, visit MDGamblingHelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Hello and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolfhawk and I'm really excited and thrilled to have with me today Dr. Marcos Vidal Mello, who is a professor of anesthesia at Harvard Medical School and Massachusetts General Hospital. He's the Hellman Chair of Anesthesia Research and the head of a really exciting lab doing really interesting functional lung imaging and research and just recently uh, awarded a big grant to do a 14-site study looking at a bundle to reduce postoperative pulmonary complications. He also recently published, uh, he was the senior author and corresponding author on a really interesting piece talking about driving pressure and transpulmonary pressure, and that is what we're going to talk about today. Some concepts you probably are hearing a lot about and may not fully understand, and I am sure that Dr. Vidal Mello can explain them to us, and so I want to welcome him to the show. Uh, Marcos, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot, Jed, for the introduction. It's great to be here and uh, an honor to chat with you and chat with all your listeners. Fantastic. And I will say that um, those uh, listeners, regular listeners, will know that anesthesiologynews.com likes to feature some of our shows, and they are going to feature this episode. So you can go over there and check it out and see a link to this episode. And also check out their new podcast called The Etherist which is actually really great. They're looking at the drug shortage crisis in the United States and what might be causing it and examining some case studies in some of those drugs and what's happening due to those drug shortages. So check that out as well. All right. So, Marcos, let's jump in. And let me ask you, uh, hopefully our listeners know, but um, in case they don't, just explain uh, for us what is driving pressure? What does that mean? What does that that term mean? Okay, so um, driving pressure is something you have every day when you do mechanical ventilation of your patients. And uh, it is essentially, by definition, uh, the plateau pressure subtracted from the PEEP. Now, there are uh, two main kinds of uh, mechanical ventilation modes, volume-controlled mode and pressure-controlled mode. In the volume-controlled mode, usually there is an inspiratory pause. And so you would like to see that perfect plateau following the peak pressure and subtract that plateau uh, from the peak to have your measurement of uh, plateau pressure. While in the pressure controlled mode, that value will go up to the pressure that's set and usually it will stabilize there. And that pressure subtracted from the peak will be the corresponding plateau pressure. Yeah, that's really interesting, and I think a lot of people don't realize that, that you can get a, a, a plateau pressure on pressure control ventilation. You just don't have to do an inspiratory pause. Uh, co- correct. And and on the flip side, also the attention to the fact that, in particularly in patients with, uh, say, bronchoconstriction or some type of airway disease, that the plateau may not stabilize in the usual, for instance, 10% default of some anesthesia machines. And as a consequence, the plateau in a volume-controlled mode could somewhat overestimate the true plateau of the patient. And in that case, if one would really want to have a good measurement of the plateau, one would have to uh, extend the pause in some way so that that equilibration measurement would be more reliable. And essentially, just to give the concept is that we, we are trying to do is to have a plateau measurement that is really representative uh, of the pressures that are acting in the alveoli and not that are acting in the 
go with. Right. And I think that's that's really key. So I, I always remember thinking of it when I was learning this as, you know, if you have very um, reactive, constricted airways, so for example, in an asthma attack, that the pressure to push air through those airways will be high. But once it's in, and it doesn't have to travel through those airways anymore, then what you're seeing that will be a lower pressure that's reflecting the pressure in the alveoli because you no longer are dealing with those constricted airways because nothing's moving through them. Exactly. Exactly. Great. All right. So that's the difference between a peak pressure, which is whatever the highest pressure is as you're as you're trying to move air in, which is could, could easily be high due to the bronchoconstriction or the airway disease, as you said, and the plateau, which if you wait long enough, is going to take all of that out of the picture and just be due to the alveolar pressure. Okay, so to get the driving pressure, you said we subtract PEEP from that plateau, and that gives us driving pressure. And why PEEP? What role does PEEP play? Why don't we just use the plateau? Why do we need to subtract PEEP? Well, then uh, essentially what we are trying to do is to have the uh, operating pressure uh, that is acting in the respiratory system. Uh, right, so the the plateau gives us the total amount of the pressure that's being delivered by the ventilator, uh, while uh, the uh, the PEEP is giving essentially the pressure that's applied at the uh, uh, mechanical ventilator at the end of the exhalation, as uh, as you know. So that essentially is the concept of driving. Right is the is the driving pressure for uh, for the ventilation. So the driving goes from the peep uh, to the plateau, while the plateau by itself is the absolute number above atmospheric pressure that's being applied by right. the ventilator. Basically. Perfect. All right. So you know uh, if my plateau pressure is fifteen and my uh, peep is five, therefore my driving pressure is ten, and I then go up by, to ten on my peep. So that now my plateau pressure should go up by five as well, and won't my driving pressure go up by the same amount? So that tell me why that's not necessarily true. Well, uh, yeah, so that that is the point there, right? And uh, the if uh, if one would think about the pressure volume curve of the respiratory system or of the lungs. And uh, if you guys go back to your physiology days, uh, you will remember that that has somewhat of a sigmoid shape. Uh, and actually, there will be a sigmoid shape that will be different from the inhalation or the uh, distension of the lung from a completely empty state to a completely full state. And then from the uh, re-emptying of, uh, of the lung from the full state back to the empty state, and there will be a space between one and the other, which is called the hysteresis of the respiratory system and of the lung. Um, and the fact that that curve is not a line, uh, in a kind of a sigmoid for a first approximation, uh, shows is that the compliance, both of the respiratory system and of the lungs, it changes depending on the level of um, distension of that system. And as a consequence, for the same magnitude of changing pressure or the same magnitude of changing volume, given that that is not a line, those changes are not going to be directly proportional continuously. So depending on the stage your specific patient is along that curve, if you give a change in 10 centimeters of water pressure, uh, you can have uh, the same or more or less changing volume, depending on that position on the pressure volume curve. Right. So that's that's really interesting and key that it's not linear. Um, and so uh, and then I and tell me, I kind of also conceptualize it as and, and this may or may not be right. So you tell me, but that, you know, if you increase the peep and by doing that, you actually uh, open up additional alveoli that were not open, uh, that then you've got more, for lack of a better word, you've got more space to put volume. And so your plateau, uh, your driving pressure won't go up by as much as your peep went up. By the same proportion. Correct, correct. And, and, and that comes even to in, in current applications to the uh, 
uh, to the optimization of PEEP, for instance, right? But yeah, so uh, going exactly uh, to to uh, this point, if uh, say now that we are talking about going up uh, on PEEP, right? And and so uh, if you go up with uh, with PEEP, and then you up, say that you are in a volume controlled mode now, so you are applying a constant volume, and then you have the change, the corresponding change in pressure that will give them a, a given driving pressure, right? So in principle, uh, you go up with the PEEP, uh, and then that change in pressure could be higher, lower, or the same as right. it was before. Then thinking back uh, on, uh, on that curve, usually um, the, uh, uh, the, the lung will come from a de-recruiter level to a recruiter level, meaning uh, the compliance of the lung is going to increase from low volumes to higher volumes, and correspondingly from low peeps to higher peeps. So usually when you increase the peep, you expect either that the change in pressure will be the same, if one would be going along the same lines of, uh, uh, of compliance. However, if this peep uh, is uh, too low, uh, actually, it could be that you're coming from a lower compliance range to a higher compliance range. So you would have a drop uh, of the delta pressures, which would represent an increase right. in the compliance of the lungs. Now, you could have the same change in pressure. What would mean essentially that you are in the linear phase of that pressure volume curve. Then we are in that linear stage, which actually would be where we want to be most of the times when we are doing mechanical ventilation of the patient. Conversely, uh, it could be that you would change the PEEP and you apply that same change in volume and you have actually an increase of the driving pressure. And in that case, that would suggest to you that actually you are getting to the uh, limit of overdistension of the lung, where instead of having, uh, as you would have in the very beginning, coming from a de-recruited to a recruited stage, now you would be going from a recruited stage to an overdistended right. stage. And then the same change in volume would produce an excessive change in pressure. Yeah, perfect. So, and just to kind of put some numbers on that, if, let's say that my, uh, my plateau pressure is 20 and my PEEP is 5, and then I increase my PEEP to 10, if I'm on that linear part of the, uh, of the lung compliance, then my, uh, my plateau pressure will go up also by 5. So now I'll have a plateau pressure of 25 and a PEEP of 10, whereas before I had a plateau pressure of 20 and a PEEP of 5. And of course, in both of those scenarios, my driving pressure has not changed. I had 20 minus 5 is 15. Now I have 25 minus 10 is also 15. So that's when I'm on the linear portion and the, the um, uh, driving pressure does not change because the plateau pressure and the PEEP go up by the same amount. But if we're, like you said, if PEEP is insufficient, then I might have a plateau pressure of 20 and a PEEP of 5. And then I increase the PEEP to 10, but my plateau pressure only goes up to 22. So now I went from 20 minus 5 is 15 to 22 minus 10 is 12. So my driving pressure went down, and that would suggest to me that this was a good change for the patient because I've now reduced the driving pressure. And then on the far end, like you said, if you're over-distending, you might go from a plateau pressure of 20 and a PEEP of 5, you increase PEEP to 10, and your plateau pressure goes up to 27. So now exactly. you, your driving pressure has gone up. Exactly. Great. Perfect. All right. So Perfect. now let's talk about the other uh, term uh, of transpulmonary pressure. So let me ask you first. People hear the term transpulmonary pressure and they hear the, the, hear the term transpleural pressure. Are those the same thing? Uh, no, uh, not at all. So uh, the, um, the real term to focus on, I, I would say, is um, uh, the term uh, Transpulmonary pressure, and uh, and even on on that there is a little bit of uh, of confusion. But essentially, what uh, what we are trying to express there in the concept of transpulmonary pressure is the pressure across the lungs, right? Is the uh, really the uh, uh, effective pressure that distends the lungs, and uh, and this is easy to understand if you think, for instance, on a piston. 
right? I mean, the, the piston moves not just because of the pressure that's inside the piston, but uh, also the pressure that's outside the piston. That's what makes that move. So in the same uh, terms, in terms of the lungs, uh, what will make the lung distend is not only then the plateau pressure that we're applying or, uh, or the airway pressure that we're applying to it, but the difference between that uh, pressure that's applied to the airway and the pressure that's outside the lung, which is exactly the pleural pressure that we are talking about. And some people use the term transpleural pressure, etc. But it's really the, the pleural pressure is, uh, uh, okay, it's the pressure that's acting between the two uh, surfaces, the visceral pleural and the parietal pleural. Uh, uh, but that is uh, that is the pressure that we are talking about there. And, and usually, even to to give a little bit of an extended uh, concept, that number uh, is considered to be a constant, but uh, all of you uh, would, uh, would understand that even that number is not necessarily a, a constant because in a standing position, uh, the pleural pressure is more negative in the apical lung regions and more towards positive uh, in the uh, dependent lung regions. And in our patients that are usually supine, uh, that pleural pressure will be more negative in the ventral regions, and it will be more towards positive in the dependent regions. And as a consequence, the transpulmonary pressures will have the reverse uh, trend, so that once you apply your airway pressure or your plateau pressure of, say, 20, uh, for instance, it will generate different transpulmonary pressures in the different lung regions because the pressure outside will be different from the pressure, uh, the pressure in the ventral areas will be different from the pressure in the dependent areas. But then back to, uh, uh, to the general concept is that the fact that the transpulmonary pressure is the pressure that is distending the lungs. So again, back to the example of a plateau pressure of 20 centimeters of water, if you have 20 centimeters of water outside, but we have because the patient is very heavy or because you are doing a laparoscopic surgery and the, and the surgeon increased the pressure in the abdomen to uh, say 15 centimeters of water or something, and we paralyze the patient and now we have a flaccid diaphragm that allows all that pressure to transfer into the thoracic mm -hmm. uh, space, uh, say that is 15, then your transpulmonary pressure could well be 20 minus 15, meaning 5. So although the plateau pressure would be 20, really the pressure distending the lung in this type of example would be 5. And the pleural pressure, if it equilibrated with this number I talked about, would be 15. Right. So that's, that's great. That really helps to, to, um, when people say transplural, I think you're right. They're referring really to plural. And so that's the pressure outside. The plateau pressure is the pressure inside. And then the transpulmonary pressure is subtracting those. Right. So, um, and, and so I sometimes, uh, will explain to my residents, um, and tell me if this makes sense that, you know, uh, the reason we, it's important to think about the transpulmonary pressure is, if you imagine a balloon and if you just take a balloon and you blow it and you blow and you blow into it and you have an unlimited ability to exert pressure, eventually that balloon is, that balloon is going to explode. But if you put that same balloon in a metal box and you blow into it as hard as you can, it's never going to explode because the pressure pushing in on the balloon from the metal box is going to protect it in a way, right? So you have to take that into account. And in a way, that's like the lung putting 20... 30, 40, however many centimeters of water of pressure into the alveoli, hard to know what to make of that until you know how much is pressing in from the outside. Uh, perfect. Yeah, that, that's, uh, uh, that's a, a very, good, uh, very good concept that's particularly applicable then uh, exactly to the, um, uh, to the use of the transpulmonary pressure uh, as a guidance for maximal uh, say then uh, inspiratory limits of uh, of safety, so that that would be uh, exactly so because you could like exactly the type of example that I was given that you have uh, abdominal pressures and you have patients also with you know uh, peritoneal hypertension uh, and etc. Uh, that uh, you will have to apply higher 
uh, airway pressures for ventilation, and those will not represent a risk to the lungs exactly because the pressure distends in the lung. The difference between one and the other will be much less. Actually, one example I, I kind of uh, like to give uh, and that people uh, used before was trumpet players. So trumpet players apply a pressure of about 150 centimeters of really? to their lungs on a regular basis. Yes. And, uh, and, and you know, I, I actually thought that this is going to be a great review. Yeah. I'm going to look for trumpet players and pneumothorax. Yeah. And I didn't find any. Uh, I looked for that in uh, PubMed and etc. to see if I would find some uh, case report and, and, and such. And I couldn't. And it's exactly this type of example you're giving. Instead of having a metal box, uh, what you have is a, a very contracted chest wall and abdomen generating all that huge pressure from outside the lungs so that when you measure that 150 centimeters of water in the trachea or in the mouth, uh, you are having also pressures in the hundreds in the pleural space. Right. So the delta pressure, the transpulmonary pressure of the trumpet player is going to be a few units of centimeters of water and he or she is not going to have a, uh, a pneumothorax. Um, so, so that that is one point. Uh, I think uh, another important aspect of this that has been used a lot then for the other uh, extreme of the breathing cycle is the point of end expiration. So we were talking about end inhalation, right? The larger part of the story. But if we think also then, also in terms of the end exhalation, it would be then the situation where, say, uh, you would have your balloon uh, connected by a straw down on a bucket full of water. And, uh, and now you are trying to insufflate that balloon there. But if you just put one centimeter of water, if if that balloon would just be in the atmosphere, the balloon would start inflating. But because it's down in the bucket and there is a, a, a large height of uh, pressure on top of it, it's not going to insufflate. And you, would be, you will have to be able to overcome that pressure, and that pressure in this case would be representing exactly the pleural pressure uh, in that region. Right to overcome that pressure in order to insufflate that balloon. So this would be the uh, the model of the application of the transpulmonary pressure to determine the PEEP that would be a minimum PEEP to prevent airway collapse at end of exhalation. That's great. I love that example. All right. So how do we measure transpulmonary pressure? And uh, and there is. Now, uh, a, good, a good conversation. But uh, th there were different methods experimentally that, uh, that have been used uh, because, as uh, all, all of you would expect, it would be a complicated thing, right? Because, like said, the transpulmonary pressure would be measured as the difference between the airway pressure and the pleural pressure. And, well, the airway pressure is pretty easy to measure. You just look at your mechanical ventilator and look at the curve and you know the airway pressure. Right. Uh, and if you want to know uh, the transpulmonary pressure at the end of uh, inhalation, you would use the plateau pressure like we did before for the driving pressure. And if we want to use the uh, transpulmonary pressure for end exhalation, we would use the PEEP or the stabilization pressure at that point. However, how do we measure the plateau? Uh, pleural pressures at right. those same time points. And, and this is the tough thing because you, we are not going to dig a hole in the chest wall to measure pleural pressures of people. So, so then we would have to start measuring surrogates uh, for clinical applications. In, in, uh, in animal experiments, yes, people, uh, people use direct measurements and, and did mini thoracotomies and put wafers or transducers or dig holes, dug holes in the, in the ribs. Uh, and then put transducers there and etc. But for clinical application, the main uh, uh, resource that has been used is the use of an esophageal balloon. Uh, so uh, you have essentially a, a, a special a catheter uh, that is uh, a catheter that can be placed usually in the lower third of the esophagus uh, and that has openings uh, that have uh, that are around uh, a cuff that you you could uh, you could think as as that of uh, of a swangans catheter but much more flaccid uh, with with an absolutely negligible 
mechanical property uh, compliance. So very, very, very small compliance. And so that you can measure the pressure at that level. And it has been shown uh, by experimental studies and, and by uh, uh, clinical studies also that that pressure um, is associated with the pleural pressure. Um, so that is the current method uh, to, to have an estimate uh, of the pleural pressures. Um, there is a, a still quite significant discussion about how to use this, uh, this uh, uh, estimate. Some uh, groups uh, would defend the aspect that um, the changes in the measurement of this esophageal pressure measured in, with this catheter are associated with the changes of the pleural pressure and just associate changes with changes. Okay. Other groups okay. would propose that the absolute measurement uh, would be uh, reliable enough to be used as an absolute estimate of the pleural pressure. There are limitations in, in both cases, and, and I think that the final answer to how to use all of this goes way beyond uh, uh, the short conversation. Uh, but fact is, is that one way or the other, uh, the, the clinical practice that came from the use of these transpulmonary pressures, I think has been pretty convincing to say that it's better to have either one approach or, or the other than not to have any. Sure. And it's better to, uh, to measure than not to measure. Absolutely. Okay. So, so let me ask you, you know, I, when I was training, I was very much taught uh, measure the plateau pressures for someone with ARDS, you know, keep them under 30, uh, even lower is better. Uh, is that now, do we think that driving pressure is a better um, goal to have in a patient with lung injury to try to uh, reduce driving pressure as much as possible? Uh, yeah, so, so this is... Uh... This is the new concept, right? And, and it was uh, uh, Dr. Marcelo Matos' uh, paper in the New England Journal of Medicine about, uh, about ARDS patients showing that the uh, benefit of, uh, of uh, PEEP, for instance, and that uh, benefits of other mechanical uh, ventilation interventions are mediated by uh, the driving pressure uh, more than by the other Parameters, uh, and and so that the uh, the use of uh, of the driving pressure as the current uh, best say uh, parameter to guide uh, ventilation would uh, would be uh, the best uh, approach. The the f issue is is that what are the um, the ranges of of this application. Is uh, is what likely has not been that accurately defined uh, exactly as as we were discussing because driving pressure is a measurement that is derived from the respiratory system, not only from the lungs. Uh, so because it's derived from the respiratory system, a value of whatever 15 centimeters of water. Uh, can mean a, a given change in lung volume in a patient and a very different change in lung volume in another. But on average, uh, at, in, in the same patient, a trend towards higher driving pressure in that same patient is something that tends to signalize something that's bad in that patient uh, and a trend towards lower driving pressure for a similar uh, tidal volumes and etc. tends to signalize something that's better for that patient. Uh, and and towards the, the limit of uh, of thirty centimeters of of water and uh, and uh, such, right? It's uh, uh, it comes to the issue of the transpulmonary pressure we were right. talking about. Right. So so then, uh, if in in this patient you are mentioning, for instance, this is a obese patient uh, with uh, with uh, the, tremendous amount of uh, penis morbid obesity, for, uh, for instance, or someone with a uh, 
terrible uh, um, peritoneal, um, intraperitoneal hypertension and etc. Uh, that is uh, producing a, a very large pressure towards uh, the uh, thoracic space. Uh, that patient may require PEEPs, for instance, that will result in plateau pressures that go beyond 30 centimeters of water uh, without at all uh, going uh, to transpulmonary pressures that would be at all risky to that right. lung. Uh, and as a consequence, uh, the use of those uh, old uh, limits, now we know that are not to the good of the patient, ultimately, because it, they, they may well uh, lead you to uh, applying sufficient levels of PEEP, applying sufficient ventilation, uh, when what the patient may need is exactly the opposite. Right. And so, so there are times, right, so we think that driving pressure is sometimes, maybe often, a good surrogate for transpulmonary pressure, but not when uh, you have a large pleural pressure, because then uh, you're, as you said, you're going to need a high plateau pressure by, because you're going to need a high PEEP just to keep that alveoli open but the transpulmonary pressure is not going to be high because you have the high pleural pressure outside. Correct. Precisely. Precisely. And that also, as you said, that makes it hard to give a number to say, you know, your driving pressure should be X, X or your plateau pressure should be Y because it really depends on what the trans, transpulmonary pressure is. Yes, yes, exactly. And so in these, um, in these, critical cases, and, and probably uh, you're planning to go there in, along the conversation, but I, I think it, it, this is a, a nice opening for that, is yeah. one of those situations when the use of these catheters uh, might be particularly useful, uh, because then we are really uh, practicing individualized medicine uh, so that we can, we can measure uh, how how these patients uh, do, uh, and and what is the value that are in this patient, and and with all the limitations I talked about before, if the absolute number is precisely the, the perfect or not, and, and etc. And, and there are still ongoing studies about this, um, but it's definitely better than nothing to give some degree of guidance uh, on uh, on the value to be used. Uh, and what I was going to say is that ju just stepping a little bit to, to the side and to give a, a, a big perspective, because uh, sometimes I had uh, colleagues come back and say, well, but you're trying to measure everything and become too sophisticated and this and that. And, and I think that for anesthesiologists, uh, it's very natural when we are thinking about cardiovascular issues to think that, well, we start the case with an EKG, a pulse ox, and a blood pressure cuff. And if the patient has a little bit more of a problem or if I have any concern, then I go to an A-line. And if I'm a little bit more concerned, this or that, perhaps I'll do a CPP. Uh, and I, if I'm even more concerned, perhaps I'll do a PA catheter or right. I'll put a TEE probe. And this is standard of care um, for cardiovascular issues. Well, why don't we have some degree of an escalating uh, um, monitoring and approach also for other organ systems. And, and I think that the, that's the way I see actually this monitoring or escalating monitoring for, for the respiratory system, where the uh, esophageal balloon comes just as a new step when we are starting to have this type of situation. So uh, the, the other example of some of these challenging situations come, for instance, with robotic surgeries. And we completed the recently uh, a study on robotic surgeries in patients uh, that were not obese. And even in those patients, we did see quite a bit of variability of their esophageal pressures so that uh, when you're using your regular uh, run-of-the-mill between quotes, protective ventilation, it becomes very clearly that actually that protective ventilation is not protective in some cases because we are allowing for negative transpulmonary pressures, meaning alveolar collapse throughout most of the cases. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so, and, you know, for the regular patient, perhaps that doesn't matter a lot, but when you start having the challenging case of, uh, of, uh, a, a number of other comorbidities, this can become a problem. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, I think that um, 
it's that you make a great argument about this as a, a way to, you know, really escalate the monitoring of the lungs in the same way we might escalate the monitoring of the blood pressure or of the um, P, uh, any kind of pressure, right? The PA pressure the, right. for a patient with, uh, with pulmonary hypertension, et cetera. So uh, is it, um, are there places that, uh, I don't, to be honest with you, I'm not even sure that we have esophageal balloons here. I mean, is it certainly if we have them, I don't know how to get them. Is it something that, are there places that are going, that are starting to have these as an option for patients who you want to monitor the transpulmonary pressure? It is true that perhaps I'm in a biased place, right? And that's the why. I, I, so our our respiratory therapists uh, are very uh, are very educated in this sense because the leadership of respiratory therapy here has been very active in uh, in having this type of interest uh, traditionally. So <clears throat> uh, through uh, respiratory therapy here at the MGH. Uh, we can have access to uh, to uh, some uh, to the esophageal uh, uh, balloons. There, there are actually uh, companies uh, that produce the balloons, and actually that started even selling uh, mechanical ventilators for ICU, then not for the OR, uh, that already have an, a port that you can feed. Uh, the connection of the balloon and have measurements and use them and etc. Yeah, so this this is coming uh, to a shop near you probably. And, uh, Good. Uh, and uh, and and if not, I mean, if if one would want to do it in kind of uh, the the old-fashioned way, from the point of view of the transduction, uh, a regular. Uh, Trans hemodynamic transducer can be used. Of course, the resolution is not as good, uh, but the number, uh, if calibrated appropriately, appropriately, will be okay. The uh, the catheter itself, yeah, needs to be available and, and can be uh, uh, bought in, in a couple of companies. And sometimes the catheter is a catheter by itself. It's a thin catheter that's placed um, in a, awake people. Uh, where people want to make monitoring of, uh, of esophageal pressures awake through the nose. But uh, in, uh, in our patients, the way I use the most is actually a, a special, uh, specially fashioned uh, OG tube, essentially, that has a third port, mm. which is exactly the port that stays in the esophagus. So that uh, it's, it's just a regular OG tube. It's just a fancier and a more expensive right, one, right. of course, uh, right. that, that gives you the third port. And that third port is the one that you could connect. I mean, you can have the, the usually the esophageal pressures will range uh, in a few tenths of centimeters of water up and down, uh, while our usual hemodynamic catheters, right, they go up to 150, 200 millimeters of mercury. So their range is, is much right. larger. But, you, you know, uh, they can be used for a uh, at least some estimation of within that range, because then that would be the range sort of a, of a CVP, right. uh, approximately. Right. So, so you could still connect to that and and have a measurement. Usually, th there is a specific procedure to uh, position the balloons, and then these uh, th there are papers, and and uh, I will uh, I will attach some of these papers as uh, references right. uh, so that that you go because then when you position, usually for mechanically ventilated people, what you do is you you push the catheter uh, or the OG tube, especially fashion, all the way into the uh, uh, the stomach. Uh, uh, and then you pull back some, and you want to have it, like said, in the lower third uh, of uh, of the esophagus, and then you insufflate the balloon uh, with a couple of uh, of uh, millimeters uh, of air, and then you deflate to allow that one to two millimeters of air would stay inside of the balloon, and then you push the stomach gently uh, to make sure that you're not pushing against the catheter, because if you see a positive oscillation when you push the stomach, it's because the catheter probably is right. in there. It's not where you right. want. Uh, and you take a look at the trace. When it's uh, positioned appropriately, you see a cardiogenic oscillation, because the lower third of the esophagus will be exactly kind of behind the heart. So uh, you will see that oscillation. And if you close the uh, endotracheal tube and you push against the chest, then you have a change in the airway pressure that's essentially equal to the change in the esophageal pressure because you have a closed airway. And mm -hmm. that gives the support that, the additional support that it is placed in the right position. And then you feel good about doing the measurement.
That's great. All right. So, so there are some tricks. Yes. Yeah, those are some great, great tricks. And definitely, if you send me um, the uh, the references you like, we'll put them up with the show notes. That's great. So uh, you mentioned sometimes laparoscopic surgery, uh, significant obesity. I imagine pregnancy is another. Are there other times where uh, and, uh, patient, uh, people may have a an elevated pearl pressure that would affect um, or make their driving pressure not a great uh, surrogate for their transpulmonary pressure? Yeah, I think you 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 uh, talked about um, most of uh, of the situations, right? So anything that uh, that would significantly uh, apply essentially pressure. Uh, to the thoracic uh, space, either from uh, external uh, pressure on the chest wall uh, uh, or uh, from from the uh, abdomen uh, into the uh, the diaphragm. So you you talking about laparoscopic surgery, uh, robotic surgery, Trendelenburg positions, uh, um, in, uh, abdominal hypertension. Uh, those I think are the most uh, usual uh, cases there. Okay, great, and then. Is there any way to know how much, I mean, obviously you could measure it if you have the esophageal balloon, but in the absence of, of being able to measure it, if you know the surgeon is insufflating the abdomen with 20 centimeters of, of water of pressure, is there any rule of thumb for how much of that is probably transmitted to the pleural pressure? Yeah, that's that's a very good question, actually. That that needs, to, I would say, needs to be studied. To, to tell you the truth, I think the, my my kind of protective rule of thumb is that almost everything is being transmitted. Okay. Uh, uh, because uh, and the reason being is because we paralyze right. the diaphragm, right. right? So, and because we paralyze the diaphragm, the diaphragm is not anymore going to have any uh, any contractile function to uh, separate. Uh, the pressures below and above it. So, so as as a consequence, it, it just acts as a flaccid membrane. Um, but uh, in, entirely, uh, you know, of course, it, it will depend on the mechanical impedances of each one of the sides, and then it becomes a little bit of a uh, of a, a complicated uh, problem. On top of the fact that there is the heterogeneity uh, that that I was uh, talking about, right? That uh, that then, de depending on on gravity. Uh, and, and depending on the chest wall, the distribution of the pleural pressures will be different. So it will, it will not be a single value uh, applicable to the whole lung. Interesting. All right. So when we get, if we are measuring it, obviously we only get a number. We get the number in the esophagus, right. and then that, that is an approximation, but it may vary across the, the length of the pleura. Oh, yeah. And, and by the way, that, that's a good one because so, and, and that number is about. Uh, when when people uh, did measurements in uh, in experiments and in cadavers, uh, it, it's about where the esophagus is, meaning a, a third from the dorsal area of the lungs. So that measurement that we do, generally, you, it would correspond to the pleural pressure at the level of the esophagus, meaning at about the level of a third from the dorsal area of the lung, a third of the height, of the total height. And if you think, though, this is kind of where atelectasis happens, right? Right. right. It's the dorsal part of right. the lung. So actually, it so happens that because of how it's measured and because of how, where the esophagus is, it actually is positioned in a way to be advantageous to tell us kind of where atelectasis is happening and then to guide somewhat the peep to be used. Great. That's perfect. All right. Marcos, this has been fantastic. Is there anything that we didn't cover that you think uh, is really important to say to our listeners before we end? Well, I, I, I would only uh, reemphasize what I uh, was talking about, that while uh, all the principles of protective ventilation uh, that have been discussing to date in terms of limitation of tidal volumes, uh, of uh, uh, maintaining some degree of lung expansion uh, is relevant. There are all these types of uh, challenging situations we've been talking about when we start kind of losing um, a good ground and, uh, and a good objective view of what's exactly happening with the lungs, and that in those cases, it might well be uh, uh, relevant to consider use of an, an esophageal balloon, uh, for instance, uh, to, uh, to be more specific in the management of patients, and also that uh, for the driving pressure, which is something that's available every day, that uh, all the clinicians would start 
take, take a look uh, on a more regular basis, see how it changes during the case, and, and perhaps if it starts to change too much to start considering, well, why, why is that happening and, and why. There, there is one conceptual aspect that we didn't talk about that perhaps we should uh, before we finish, because it's very, uh, I think, relevant from the concept of why uh, physiologically driving pressure should be uh, important because one could say, well, okay, well, this is the plateau minus the peep, so what, right? It's kind of, yeah. So um, the the physiological concept behind the story that makes it relevant is if uh, if you remember uh, the equation of the compliance of the lungs, uh, which is the compliance of the lungs equals the change in volume, so say the tidal volume, divided by the corresponding change right. in pressure. Uh, that change in pressure is exactly the driving pressure. Now, if you put the driving pressure to one side of the equal sign and bring the compliance to the other side of the equal sign, if you guys can follow me in the conversation, it will be that the driving pressure is equal to the tidal volume divided by the compliance. Now, if you think that tidal volume is a change in volume, okay, change in volume, and that the compliance of the respiratory system and of the lungs in some way is a measure of the amount of alveolar units that are open, meaning if someone has a high compliance, a lot of alveolar sure. units are open. If the patient has a low compliance, less alveolar units are open. For a first approximation, I know that there are several other complications for this, but as a first approximation. Then that ratio of tidal volume by a compliance, which is the driving pressure, is a ratio between a change in volume and an initial available volume that is being distended by that tidal volume. Well, this concept of changing volume divided by the initial volume is so-called volumetric strength. And a number of other uh, studies, including studies from our lab, uh, have shown the relevant of this uh, relevance of this volumetric strain as ultimately the determinant of lung injury by mechanical ventilation. So driving pressure is actually, say, a poor man's global volumetric strain measure of your patient, yeah. uh, and uh, and then it becomes kind of an interpreter, yeah. I think, if you see yeah. it, if you see it this way. So so if you think this way, at least to start, uh, you you can see why it would be. And then we talked about uh, the driving pressure information in uh, in ARDS patients. But then our own group, uh, together with Dr. Matthias Eichermann and Karin Lada, who is now in Toronto and etc., we've shown that in patients undergoing non-cardiothoracic surgery, that the driving pressure is the main determinant of postoperative pulmonary complications, a study in more than wow. 60,000 patients. Uh, wow. So, so it does show, and then Dr. Uh, Dr. Ari Serpaneto also had a publication with the group in Europe and et cetera and in other places that uh, confirmed this type of results. So showing that actually it is kind of interesting that this parameter that in principle could be kind of simplorious, right? Okay, plateau minus P, whatever, that it starts showing that it, it really seems to have uh, some meaningful um, message in several clinical settings, so not only in RDS, but actually in regular mechanically ventilated non-cardiothoracic patients. So just to emphasize these two points. Yeah, that's fantastic. Thanks for sharing that. Um, all right. So now is the part of the show where we make random recommendations, something that you would recommend to our listeners as they are going about their weekend and thinking about how they could entertain themselves. Do you have anything, uh, Marcos, that you'd like to share? Uh, sure. Uh, it's going to be sunny and, uh, and somewhat windy in, uh, in New England this uh, weekend. So either if you, if you like some water sports, there is some windsurfing and kitesurfing to be done, uh, either in Revere Beach or down the Cape. Uh, nice. Or even if, uh, if you want to uh, watch, these are beautiful places just to go and uh, appreciate the environment. That is awesome. Thank you so much uh, for recommending that. 
My random recommendation is going to have to do with the amazing history of anesthesia trip that we just did. We take our CA2s every year to Boston. Uh, we have just incredible uh, experiences there. We're very lucky to be hosted by some of the fantastic faculty who have taken a real interest in uh, the history of anesthesia. Uh, and we do a tour around uh, Boston and Mount Auburn Cemetery and just some of the real sites where some of the key figures in the history of anesthesia are buried. And we go to the Ether Dome. We just learn a ton and have a great, great time every year. We're very lucky to get to do that. I'm very appreciative of our hosts there in Boston. And uh, I would say that anybody who can get to Boston at any point just just go around. You can find a lot of this on the internet. Look, look up the history of anesthesia, some of the key people and places in and around Boston, and check it out. Even if you do it uh, on your own without some of the incredible faculty there who, who help us out, I still think you'll get a lot out of it. And it's a really rich experience. I think it really is able to bring home and, and emphasize some of the rich history of what we do every day. I think it's easy to get caught up in the you know daily pressure and the daily tasks, but to forget that we're part of this larger story and it's really fascinating. So my recommendation is check out the history of anesthesia in and around Boston, Massachusetts. And I'm very excited that we have a listener recommendation today, a random recommendation from the one and only Dr. Alex Stone, who was, I'm proud to say, a medical student here at Johns Hopkins, is now a resident at the Brigham, and he recommends an Instagram uh, feed called Anesthesia History. So check out Anesthesia History on Instagram, and you'll see some really interesting posts uh, that will complement a lot of the tour you're going to do when you go to Boston and check that out. So thank you to Alex Stone for sending in a random recommendation. Remember, everyone out there, send them in. You can email them to akrak at akrak.com. You can tweet them at me, at jwalpaw, or at 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 rackpodcast, and we will sift through them and uh, put some of them on the air. All right, Marcos, thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, thanks a lot, Jed. This was great. All right. That was fantastic. I hope you enjoyed it. Let us know what you thought. Go to the website, com, where you can leave a comment and others can learn from what you have to say. Let us know what you are doing at your place. Are you using driving pressure uh, or are you still using plateau pressure and how are you using it? You can also join the conversation on Twitter. I'm at Jay Wolpaw. And of course, the podcast is at ACRAC Podcast. You can also join the Facebook group, the ACRAC Facebook group, and take part in the conversation there. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to iTunes and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. If you're interested in supporting the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference, and we really appreciate it. Of course, you can also make a donation anytime at paypal.me slash ACRAC. Thank you so much to those who are already patrons and have already made donations. A huge thank you to Brian Park for making the outline for some of the shows. And, of course, to our ACRAC intern, Kimia Kashkuli. And a big thank you, as always, to the man responsible for our original ACRAC music. That's Dr. Dennis Quo. Check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right. That's it for today. Thanks so much for listening. For Dr. Vidal Mello and the ACRAC Podcast, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. 